I want to start with some statistics. There's been a whole ton of research done about the, the positive effects of having community. Obviously, it's enhanced infinitely when it's within a community that's built on Christ. Because we are not, we are not just people living on a horizontal plane. We were created in God's image, so we are spiritual beings. So we are also living on a both vertical and horizontal plane. But check what they even found out for those living on the horizontal plane, the benefits of having a community. And they found that those who have strong social connections, they have less stress-related health problems, both mental and physiological. And they recover faster from trauma and illness just by being in a community like this. You can't get this on social media, by the way. Researchers also found that people are happier when they're with other people, whether you're introverted or extroverted. or somewhere in between. I fall somewhere in between those. <laughs> that, that when you're around other people, you, you become more pleasant and more helpful and more happier. And then naturally, people around you become happier because you're happier. And it creates what they call an upward spiral of happiness. Cool, right? They also found that happiness is surprisingly contagious. They found that your, your happiness that rubs onto other people, that affects their friend's friend. There's three degrees of happiness. So your happiness that you gain from here, your joy in Christ, can rub off onto your friend at work, and that coworker's friend can feel that happiness, and then that, a friend of that friend can, can get that happiness as well. Isn't that amazing? We were such social creatures made in the image of God who is a community within himself. And then lastly, they found that the, the positive effects of connecting with others are lasting more than a, a material possession. So scientists, what they observe is called hedonic adaptation, that when you, when you, you know, buy or, or gain a lot of material goods, you become really happy, but then really quickly you fall back into the level of happiness you had before. So a lot of people who win the lottery, the happiness they had before that ends up being the same soon after that. Our brains naturally grow, adapt to, to that high that we had. Close relationships, however, is an exception. They found that in contrast to material goods, you're likely to continue to derive, derive a positive emotions from these close relationships, and you want it more and more and more. And so within the church context, this is the ideal environment wherein we can find a true community, both vertically and horizontally, in a unique way that you cannot find anywhere else, when done rightly. And so that's what I want to talk about today, a new community, unity. This is what we're talking about, unity. And so my, my, my proposition is simple. Get together to get it together. Get together to get it together. You know, to not only get your life together, but to get that blessing together from God. We need to get together physically to do this. Okay? So get together to get it together. And my, my points are just two simple subpoints the beauty of unity and the blessing of unity. Okay? The beauty of unity and the blessing of unity. David writes in Psalm 133, the Song of Ascent. Meaning, there's this, this is a song to sing when they're going up to the temple in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They're, so people from all over the known world, these Jews that are dispersed, they're, they're coming to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to celebrate this festival, to come before God in worship, grateful for all that he has done. And, and so David, he's looking out at all these people coming together, and he says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I'm going to pause right there on that first verse. How good and behold... 
Look it. Look at this. In the Oxford Dictionary, behold is to observe or look at something that is remarkable or extraordinary. Right? So if I were to say, hey, behold, chairs. It wouldn't make sense, right? But if I, if I were to take these chairs and if I were to stack them and, and make it spell out TGC, Trinity Gospel Church, then I would say, behold, chairs, and you would get it. You go, wow, look at these chairs, right? And so David, he's looking at these people, and, and, and they're gathered together for this one purpose, grateful for God to worship him, and they're unified together both on the vertical and horizontal plane, and he's going, behold, stop what you're doing, take a look, look intently at this, look at how amazing this is. Behold. Just the other day, uh, my family, we were at the mall with Rebecca's mom because Rebecca's mom wanted to buy shoes for her kids growing feet. And um, it, it, was, it, just, it struck me that there were just so many people in there, you know, of all different kinds, but they're, they're, they're so isolated from one another. And there's so much estrangement and all these things. And you know that they're all pitted against each other, whatever, you know, according to their own categories, whether it's Gen Z and millennials and you name it, whatever groups that our society tries to put them in. And, and it struck me that just being in one big place together does not mean that you're unified. Us being together in this gym, gym packed out like this does not mean that we're unified. But these worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, they're gathered here, and they are unified. And David is going, wait, 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 look, there's something extraordinary going on here. What's happening here, it's good and pleasant. When brothers dwell in unity, quick question, can you remember when God in the scriptures described something as good and pleasant in the Bible, maybe the first time it happened? It's found in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that God created all trees producing fruit that is pleasant to the eye and good for food. And then on the seventh day, it says God finished his work and, and then behold, he saw that it was good. Creation. What I want to suggest is that when we read the scriptures, what we see here, what, what, what God is doing in the meta-narrative, in the big story of salvation history, what, what, what began in creation, it's already good news. The moment Adam and Eve arrived, when they arrived on the scene, it could have been bad news. It could have been like this bland, dreary existence, you know, <laughs> with no order, and it was just, you know, it just looks whatever. But God created it so that it was pleasing to the eye. And it was good. There's order to it. There's shalom to it. And so they arrived at this. And so there's a creation account. And then guess what happens when sin entered, when Adam and Eve decided, I'm going to decide for myself what's good or evil. I'm going to decide to flip the roles. I'm going to decide to be the creator of the good life, of the pleasing life. That's when decreation happened. Decreation. We began to disrupt that which was good and pleasing in God's sight. And everything began to cascade from there on out to every domain of life. God said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And little did they know that they would die a slow death in every single way. Biologically, socially, physiologi physiologically, uh, relationally, mentally, spiritually, ultimately. 
and that reverberated throughout creation. And, and, and God decided that even, even though they did that, I will begin a new redemption plan and it will be a recreation through my son, Jesus Christ. That all who submit to his lordship and, and receive his offer of forgiveness, he will begin a new work and it will be a new creation through Jesus, the second Adam. And so God makes a covenant with people. Look, there's a Christ coming, there's a Christ coming, there's a Christ coming. And those who, who attach themselves to this Messiah, this promised Messiah, this is where the good and pleasing love can come about again. Here's the thing. You and I are given messages in this world, and our hearts are self-deceived into believing it, that there are other ways to attain the good life. Walking around the mall, I saw it everywhere. Here are ways. Look this way, have these things, experience this and that, and this will give you the good and pleasing life. Of course, it says nothing about Jesus in any of the stores. Not that I'm expecting them to. We live in a fallen world. But we give in to these messages of the good and pleasing life. And I want to point out one thing. Here's where the disunity really started in the garden. So once they decided, I'm going to decide for myself how to get that good and pleasing life. I will be Lord. I will be creator. I will decide what's good and evil. Once Adam and Eve decided to do that, what happened was, is that it says that they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And they hid themselves from behind the tree and sowed fig leaves and covered themselves. They felt ashamed. And so as soon as they felt that shame, it's like, it's like a cancer just entered into their body, into their perfect environment, and it began to corrode from the inside out. And, they, and this community they had with God cut off, the community they had with one another cut off, with creation cut off. Everything just gets messed up from there on out. Do you see? Decreation. And it started with shame. And here's how the world tells us to battle that shame. Here are ways in which that you can feel like you belong. Here's, here's what shame is. Shame, essentially, it, 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 it's, it's real or perceived sense that I don't deserve to be accepted. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't have worth in people's eyes. That's what shame is. Each and every single one of us since Adam and Eve, we've been trying trying so hard to cure that, to self-medicate that on our own. And what society is telling us right now is to find it in this label, in this identity. Find it in this group. Then you will feel accepted. Then the shame will go away. And here's the thing, if you find your identity and worth and significance and security in anything other than Christ, what will eventually happen is you will begin to experience more and more decreation internally and externally in all your relationships. Everything will begin to continue to decreate. It will become tribalistic. You will become proud that you have what others don't have or are what others are not. You'll become insecure around those who have more than you or have experienced more than you. And you become hateful toward, toward those who are unlike you or are opposed to you. Naturally. Anything, you fill in the blank, that will happen. And any church that has put anything other than Christ, that's exactly what will happen as well. Any church that has replaced Christ and put something else as their main mission to find their worth and security in, that's exactly what will happen as well. 
tribalistic pride, insecurity, and hateful towards outsiders. The same exact thing. But if you make Christ the very reason for your identity, a bleeding, dying Savior who died for you, his enemies, you have no reason to be prideful but be in utter gratitude and awe and thankfulness for this God. And he's the reason we come together as a new covenant community. You can't compare yourself to others because we go, we all have fallen short of the glory of God in Christ. We are restored in him. We've all fallen short. No comparing. And we can't look at the outsiders and go, oh, those guys. No, 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 no. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be just like them. Matter of fact, I'm so aware of my sin as I look at the cross that I probably go, I'm probably worse if it weren't for Jesus. And I want them to know the very forgiveness that I have experienced. I want them to know the future that I have, the the hope that I have, the love and the acceptance and the shame that's taken away and absolved. I want them to know that too. The world cannot offer you that. You will not find that anywhere else. So David is looking at this. He's going, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, the people of God, the children of God dwelling in this unity where they're dwelling together because of God. People from all over the world coming together, these Jews that were dispersed through all the known world, gathering together to worship this God in gratitude. This is the only way that it happens. No other thing will work. No other person will work. No other ideology will work. Nothing else. We will continue to decreate. So he sees this is the beauty of unity, how good and pleasant it is. What we see here is that it's both a value and an experiential judgment. We see here that it's good, as in the, the, there's an order to it, there's a shalom to it, there's a moral rightness about their unity, and then it's pleasant in that it's, it's beautiful. There's, no, there's not even like a, it doesn't necessarily have to have like a practical uh, uh, consequence uh, or effect. There's something beautiful about it. It images God, the beautiful one, the psalmist who says, my desire is to gaze upon your beauty all the days of my life. Nothing practical about that, but there's something in there that strikes a chord in us. And it's just beautiful. And that in itself is worth looking at and to strive toward. It's good and pleasant. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Okay, context. This just sounds really messy, right? It sounds super messy and sticky and slimy. <clears throat> All right, so <laughs> what we see here, Aaron, great high priest, Levitical priesthood. He served the temple on behalf of all the people of Israel. And he would go in there into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people to be forgiven, right? Pray on behalf of the people, intercede on behalf of the mediate on behalf of the people. Ultimately, a forerunner, a picture of Christ who would do that on the cross. What Aaron had, he had a breastplate that had all the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on there. All the 12 tribes, all the sons of Jacob that descended and became tribes, they're all written down on there. And so when this oil, when Aaron was consecrated, set apart for this service, his ordination, his induction into this role, they poured this oil on there, which it was a very specific uh, uh, a mixture. It smelled great. It, it, it was an amazing smell. 
Um, and so when you poured it down, it would run down and then would go over the breastplate, over the names. And what you saw there was that the oil would essentially unite all the names together. Do you see? And it was a beautiful sight and a beautiful smell. If you were there, it, it was just, ah. It was a very pleasant thing to smell. It was an, it was an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And what we see here is that also this oil was used to consecrate everything. Anything that was used in the temple, they would put the oil on it to say that representing the Holy Spirit. This, this represents God's presence. It's, it's consecrated, holy, and set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart for God's use. It's set apart for God's use. What we see the implication here is that in order to serve God rightly, we have to be unified. In order for any of these services to be done in the temple of God and before the presence of God, it needed to be consecrated with the Holy Spirit, which symbolizes the unifying power over God's people. What this means is that we could try to do all our serving and all our worshiping, all our preaching, teaching, everything that we do. But if we're not unified, we are not rightly serving God and one another. We are not. Matter of fact, Jesus makes this point so starkly in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, hey, if, if, if a brother or sister is angry at you, and you're about to offer your gift at the altar, at the temple, drop it. Leave it there. Go get right with your brother who's angry with you. Then come back. You're not serving me rightly unless you get that relationship reconciled. Okay? rightly serve God, we have to be unified. How are we doing? How am I doing? And then the, the, the direction we're going to see here in these next two uh, pictures, that, that the blessing of unity, that it's always a downward uh, uh, a direction, meaning that it descends from God. It's not something that we create, but we set ourselves up as we decide to submit to God under the authority of the scriptures and the guidance of the spirit, that when we do that, that, that God, we, we, we set ourselves up as a sacrifice pleasing to God for his spirit to fall down on us and to create this unity that is supernatural, okay? So it's God, and we're going to see this here in the second verse. Or, or, or the, the third verse. It's only three verses this whole chapter, but it's so packed. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Again, the same direction, going down. A little bit of context as well. Hermon was this mountain that was the highest mountain in Israel, in, in Jerusalem. Extremely high, so much so that it was snow-capped. It had a cap of snow at the top. And what would happen is that um, this, the, the liquid or, or the water from the snow cap would go precipitate into the air and the precipitate onto the ground to the arid, dry uh, land of Israel that goes through drought for months and months. It's known for that. And this is the only way that the crops get planted or, or, or grow and flourish. The orchards, the gardens, the crops, this is the only way through the, mount of, through the dew of Mount Hermon. This is the only way. If any of you have a humidifier at home, Right, usually used in the winter seasons, there's this uh, the mist that goes up, and then usually in the morning down there, it's the, the ground is a little soaked. Right, that's exactly the picture of what happens with Mount Hermon. This is the only way for true life to flourish in Israel in, in the crops. And so what God here is saying is that this is what unity is. You could have all the ingredients set up in doing ministry. 
But if you do not have the unity which God bestows on you, you cannot experience true flourishing to its fullest. You just can't. This is the only way. And so in that same way, God is is saying, look, you are experiencing drought. You are experiencing uh, 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 famine if there's no unity in your community. You could have all these things going on, programs, this and that. But if there's not unity, you are famished as a church, as a people of God. This is how important this is. If you remember from last week, Colossians chapter 3. But I'm just going to read it again. It's so good. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one is complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There it is again. If we don't have that love infusing everything that we do, there's no adherence to the things that we do. It will fall apart. We all know this, don't we? Whether even if it's in our marriages or familial relationships or friendships, if there's no love, things will begin to fall apart eventually in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our relationships, in our lives. Everything begins to fall apart. And so what, what, what David here is saying, what God is saying through David and through Paul in Colossians 3 is that we need this love, this unity, in order for things to adhere, to glue, to bind, and to actually flourish, to be solid through the storms of life, through the, to be solid through the storms of ministry. This is the only way that this can happen. So the question is, are we unified? Going back to my first question, what is it that drives everything that we do? What is it that you are finding ultimate worth and security and significance in? Are we we going to become, if it's not Christ, I'm telling you, we will become tribalistically prideful. We will become insecure before others and become hateful towards outsiders. That's, that's, it's inevitable. But if it's Christ, if it's Christ, namely the one who at Mount Calvary, where the crown and the nails pierced his skin so that the blood flowed down to us. And that we could be nourished with the forgiveness and the love and the grace that he offers. It's from that place at the foot of the cross that we receive new life. And we come together not because, hey, I'm better than you, I've earned this or whatever, but because I've got nothing. And Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness and thank you, God, for the hope we have. I'd be lost without you and I cherish you. You are my greatest treasure here and forever. We come together like that. I promise you, we will be unified and the blessing of God will fall down on us and everything that we do will bear fruit, I'm telling you. But if we are disunified, that will not work. We will only go so far, it will all fall apart. We need that love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. How are we doing? How am I doing? So church, as we start this new season together, Trinity Gospel Church, we come together, we're back to church. And we know full well that there's so much benefits to community, but let's do it the right way. What brings us together is not this or that, this or that. No, you fill in the blank. Nope, get that all out of here. It's going to create pride and security and hate. Nope, let it be Jesus, the Savior on the mountain who, who bled and died for us, his enemies who secured an eternal 
never-ending tomorrows with him. And he says, give that love to each other and shine like a redeemed community in this dark world and bring them in. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we just commit ourselves to you. Lord, we consecrate ourselves to you. We set ourselves up as a pleasing sacrifice to you. Lord, Holy Spirit, fall down on us as we look to Jesus, our bleeding, dying Savior who died for his enemies, namely us and this world that he loved, this world that you loved, that we would not perish but have eternal life. May nothing become our central focus. May nothing else become our central mission but this Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb who will come back and restore all things. This is our blessed hope. No one and nothing else in this world. We've experienced decreation because we have replaced him with something else. And Lord, we repent of that this morning. And we bow our feet at the foot of the cross. Cleanse us anew once again, Lord. May we be indeed good and pleasing in your sight. That the world may look at us and behold something that they've been searching for all their lives and can't find in this world. And find that the true shame is truly taken away in Christ. And that they're given a hope, a true treasure that will last forever and never be taken away in the kingdom of heaven. So God, in light of this, in view of your mercy, we offer ourselves a sacrifice of worship now and with our lives. Be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.